0: Our passage this evening is Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. It's a famous passage, the story of the transfiguration, where Jesus went up on the mountain and his appearance was changed. You'll remember in Mark so far, Mark has been primarily concerned with who Jesus is. And we've also seen that nobody else really seems to get it yet except those you would not expect to get it. The disciples don't get it. The religious leaders don't get it. And so the question is, are they going to see who Jesus is as they see his very appearance transform in front of them? So we turn now to Mark. Listen once again to the reading of God's word. Mark chapter nine. We'll read starting in verse two through verse 13. Hear God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You'll remember last time, right at the end of our last passage, first verse in chapter nine, Jesus makes a proclamation that is somewhat confusing without the context. He says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. If you were to envision the kingdom of God coming with power, what does that look like? Well, in Mark and in Matthew and in Luke, this story of the transfiguration follows immediately this promise. So we have to understand that in some way, this transfiguration where they see Jesus, the king of power, transfigured before them is a fulfillment, at least in part of that promise, that some standing there would see the kingdom of God come in power. This can surely cannot be all that it points forward to because we still await that final day and they also still awaited Jesus resurrection from the dead which also fulfilled the kingdom of God coming with power but this does in part give us a glimpse into the glory of this king of power. Now, king of power. What does a king of power look like to you? What pops into your head? Maybe it's images Reminiscent of the Lord of the Rings. Maybe it's a great throne. Maybe it's somewhat more celestial looking than Lord of the Rings, but it usually entails great wealth, glorious throne, righteous judgments proclaimed, powerful words spoken and enacted, people who do whatever the king says, victory over the enemy, peace in the land. Would we ever run immediately to suffering as a quality of the king of power? Probably not. But Jesus tells us a few things about the king of power today. He tells us that the king of power is the king of glory and authority and victory and suffering. And that will be our outline for today. Glory, the king of glory, the king of authority, the king of victory, and the king of suffering. Let's look at the king of glory Verses two through six. It says that Jesus was transfigured. This word metamorph means to change, change form to transform the appearance changes. It says in verse three, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. This is not an earthly whiteness. This is nothing a launderer could do. This is from Heaven. This white robe, many times in scripture, is reminiscent of a heavenly messenger. They're described as having white or radiant clothes. And so the point here is that we see Jesus' origin is not from this world. He's from heaven. He is otherworldly. Specifically, in Daniel 7, you'll remember Daniel 7 is the passage where uh, we we find the prophetic uh, phrase, son of man that Jesus claims for himself. Jesus claims to be the son of man and the son of man in Daniel 7 talks about the one who has dominion and power and authority and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And that very chapter says this in Daniel 7, 9, it says of the ancient of days, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow. So the son of man is associated with the ancient of days and their clothing is white White as snow, radiant, shining. Because this kingdom coming in power is on Mark's mind as he's talking about the Son of Man and this kingdom and this king in white robes. Forrest Gump says, My mama always said you can tell a lot about a person by their shoes, where they're going, where they've been. Well, in scripture, you can talk, tell a lot about somebody by their robes. And with Jesus in particular, you can tell where he comes from by his white robes. He is the son of man who will reign over his enemies, the one given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. He is equal with the ancient of days himself, the eternal God clothed in all the splendor of heaven with glory and power. And there is a day coming when he will come with the clouds and he will rule and reign in unveiled glory. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We see this king of glory also in the fact that Elijah and Moses are with him. Now, why specifically Elijah and Moses? There's lots of debate over that. But what is clear is that these both anticipate the final prophet. Because Moses... Says in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. And so there will be a second Moses, the final prophet. And then Elijah is spoken of in Malachi 4, 4 and 5, as is Moses. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The second Elijah is going to come. Both Moses and Elijah had encounters with God on top of Mount Sinai. And where else did Jesus and the disciples find themselves but on top of the mountain? Because the mountain is the place where God often meets with his people, where he shows his glory and where he speaks and where there's special revelation that God gives to his people. But we cannot just think that Jesus is another prophet like Elijah and Moses, as some had suggested in chapter eight. And then Peter declared, no, they say you're John the Baptist. They say you're Elijah. You're one of the prophets, but you are the Christ. Jesus must be greater than just another prophet, because the voice of God did not come from the cloud here to affirm either Moses or Elijah as his son. They were not the ones who remained with the disciples at the end of this. They are the ones from the past who authenticate Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy, not the other way around. They serve to show Christ's superiority because there's only one left to complete the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And it's not Moses or Elijah, it's Jesus. And then Peter opens his mouth again. As we say back home, bless his heart. (laughs) Peter says... Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, he had just professed Jesus to be the Christ in chapter eight. He had just said, you are the Christ when everybody else thinks you're just a prophet. But what we realize is Peter doesn't understand what that means. He gets the title, but he doesn't get the content of who this savior is. He sees the Jesus with these other two, and he suggests that they sh- he should build three tents, one for each. Now, what's meant by tent is, is not known, but we do know that a tent was a place of honor. And so he was not entirely off by wanting to honor these men, but the fact that he wants to build three equal tents, one for each of them, the fact that he calls, the fact that he calls his Savior, who he's just called the Christ, in radiant glory, heavenly glory, there on the mountain as God's voice is speaking, the fact that he calls him rabbi shows that he does not understand to whom he speaks. Rabbi is a common term for a teacher. He reveals he still cannot see the superiority of Christ. So, Mark clarifies for us that no matter what Peter said it, or how it's understood, it, it didn't make sense because Mark says this, he did not know what to say for they were terrified. But I, I can't blame Peter. I don't know what I would have done in that situation. When you encounter the glory of God on the mountain like that and something you've never before seen, they thought this was lasting to the point where they were willing to build tents for this. I don't know how I would have responded because I know that even in because I know that in in my heart I can come up with any excuse not to believe even the things that God has shown me. What does this mean for us as we encounter this king of glory here? We need to beware of making Christ the glorious king of power. We need to beware of making him a co-king in our lives. We have lots of kings that we let rule various parts of our lives, but there is one king of power. There is one king king who is truly the king and when god says you shall have no other gods before me that is not a list of priorities where you can have other gods as long as god number god is number one that's not what that means god is saying you shall have no other gods in my presence you shall not have any other gods period jesus alone is the king of glory the king of power and we let all these other kings fight and compete in our lives. Jesus might be king on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings, but who's king on Monday mornings? Who's king of your wallet? Who's king of your time? Who's king of your relationships? Jesus alone reigns. Let him be the king over every corner of your, of your life and your heart. That's the king of glory. Let's look at Jesus as the king of authority. This comes in verses seven and eight. And the point here is Jesus speaks and acts with authority from God himself. The voice here as God spoke out of the cloud is reminiscent of Moses' ascent up Mount Sinai in Exodus 24 when God had revealed, was giving the law to him. Again, on the mountain here, a place of special revelation. With the voice of God speaking from the cloud as God spoke to Moses from the cloud. Here we see Moses, by God's authority, had led Israel out And God had given his word here. Jesus leads the new Israel, his people, out of slavery and gives the word, the covenant, the new covenant. And how do you enter this kingdom except to repent and believe as Jesus has been proclaiming? Jesus now is the new Moses with the new covenant that replaces the covenant of Sinai with heavenly authority to proclaim special revelation from God. And then God speaks... And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That might trigger your memory, it might remind you of another time that God spoke from heaven in this very book. And he, this was at Jesus's baptism in Mark chapter one, where Jesus was coming up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. All that is entailed there in the baptism is also being said here that Jesus is the eternal Son of the Father. Jesus is the King of authority with authority from heaven as He is from heaven. Authority from God as He is from God. But what's really unique about this one here, really important in verse 7 of our passage, God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's not speaking to Jesus this time. He's speaking to the disciples. God himself speaks to his people so that they might understand who this Jesus is. God himself reveals the glory of our savior to his people and invites them to come and get a glimpse of his glory. What a gracious God. We're reminded that Jesus' origin is not of this world. His origin is from heaven at the right hand of the Father where He is seated now. And Jesus' authority to speak the Word of God is affirmed. And the fact that we need to listen to Him is undeniable. This makes us ask these questions about the Trinity. What does it mean that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are God? God calls Him my beloved Son. That doesn't mean that there was a time when Jesus was not, that does not mean Jesus is eternally begotten. So that means there was never a beginning point. His relationship to the father is from before all time past. The father, the son and the spirit are co-equal in majesty and in glory. They are all uncreated, immeasurable, eternal and almighty. And as the Athanasian creed puts it, nothing in this Trinity is before or after nothing is greater or smaller And we know that right now the Son of Man has sat down at the right hand of the Father in glory. There he remains because it is with the Father that he belongs from all eternity. And there he remains until he returns to judge the earth with authority and with justice. You're battling between flesh and spirit on the day in, day out basis. Remember which authority will prevail in the end. Remember which authority dwells within you, and it's the authority from God Himself through the Spirit who dwells in His people. And when you analyze the authority that comes from within, it's really no authority at all. The longings of the flesh, the desires of this world, the pulls from our own hearts, they're fickle, they're weak, short-lived, they're sinful. There is instead a greater authority, and it's by the, the power of the Spirit that you and I live, given to us, By our Savior. And when you see the world set against you, remember, the world also has no authority. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Let's fear our Lord, the king of authority. We've looked at king of glory. We've looked at the king of authority. Let's look at the king of victory. This is verses 9 and 10. Here, the point is that Jesus is the conquering king of victory. He wins Because of his resurrection. And Jesus commands the disciples not to tell anyone. He says, don't tell them what you've seen until. This is the first time Jesus has put a condition on it. He's always said, don't tell anyone. But this time he says, don't tell anyone until. Until the son of man has risen from the dead. He is promising here the resurrection. It's not the first time he did it also in chapter eight. And when he rises from the dead, it indicates victory over the enemy. Yeah, I sat this weekend down in West Virginia in the hotel overlooking a cemetery. It's not the most beautiful view, but it does make you think. Look out across those hundreds, thousands of headstones in perfect rows. And it makes me think, it seems counterintuitive to say that life is going to win because it looks like death is winning. It looks, for those who have lost people near to you, you know the weight of pain and pain of death. Now, we remember though that if in Christ we have hope for this life, only we are of all people most to be pitied. We know that in Christ, we actually have hope beyond this life. We know that there is life beyond the grave. The disciples even questioned this when Jesus had raised, which helps us see that there is a real physical element to this. Jesus had promised them, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise. He promises it multiple times in the book, yet when it happens, they don't believe it. The disciples felt hopeless. They felt helpless. They didn't believe the stories that they had been told that Jesus had raised from the dead because it felt like death had won for good. But Jesus historically, really, truly, and physically rose out of the grip of death and conquered death and sin and Satan forever. Headstones in a cemetery do not have the final say. There's a mark that says the date of death. But you know that we live forever and we will rise either to eternal life or to eternal damnation and we as believers (coughs) we as believers are going to share in christ's resurrection as first corinthians 15 tells us saying death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ it's in his resurrection that we have the hope that we too will rise He's promised that if we suffer with him, we will rise with him and reign with him. But the disciples still don't get it because we can hear them arguing among themselves. And it really has this hint of scoffing. They don't get what it means that the Messiah, the great prophet is going to rise. And they say, what is this rising from the dead mean? Because they can't comprehend a world in which their concept of the Messiah is going to suffer. Now, I've said that the Messiah is going to, that Jesus, the King of power, is is the King of victory and will rise from the dead. But what we've not addressed is the fact that that requires him to die. And that is exactly the thing that we do not anticipate. That is exactly the thing that Peter was pushing back against when Jesus said, don't tell anyone. Peter says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says, well, let me teach you what that means. It means I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter starts to rebuke him because he doesn't want the Messiah to suffer and die. He cannot wrap his mind around it. So let's look now at this king of suffering. This king of suffering. The disciples were looking for every reason to not have to believe that Jesus is going to die because they want him to win. They want him to reign. They want him to become the Messiah, the national victor that they expect. So they actually pull out Malachi 4. They say, well, the scribes have been talking about this Elijah. This Elijah from Malachi 4 which says this behold i will send you elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the lord comes and so they think well what about this elijah guy you say you're going to have to suffer but i thought there was going to be elijah aren't you the great elijah aren't you the replacement of the elijah and and if you're here now we expect the great and awesome day of the lord what is this suffering that you're talking about Isn't God going to win the day now? We've seen your glory manifest. So they say, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come if you say that the son of man is going to suffer? And the short answer is this. That glory of God that we anticipate. That reign of Christ, that majesty in which Jesus is going to reign does not belong to us unless it is purchased for us. We do not have access to that reign, to that glory, to that life, unless it is purchased for us. And Jesus clarifies for them, this Elijah has come. This Elijah came, he was John the Baptist, the one that they mistreated, locked up and beheaded. He's the one who suffered. That's why Jesus says in verse, thing, verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased. So the one who comes before Jesus, the precursor to Jesus, suffers. And he just told us in the last passage, you, my followers, are going to suffer. And this is the second time he's telling them, I am going to suffer. We automatically categorize suffering as bad. But I'm going to tell you the suffering is good. It doesn't make sense because it looked like a losing battle as the king of power stood on trial before he died. Bound, beaten, and questioned. But Jesus was in that moment winning because his kingdom, which is not of this world, was breaking out in strength and authority against the real enemy of death and spiritual darkness. He was beating sin. This sounds foolish to the world, but it is the power of salvation for us who believe. Jesus descended. He condescended to be with us. He took on humanity in his incarnation. And in so doing... He made the way for our union with Christ. That suffering was good. Jesus was punished unjustly. And you and I received justification as believers. Jesus' mockery brought honor for believers. Jesus' suffering brought peace for believers. And Jesus' death brought us life. Paul says it this way, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, how? By the blood of his cross. He was willing to shed his blood on the cross for our sins. Calvin says it this way, there is no tribunal so magnificent There is no throne so stately, no show of triumph so distinguished, no chariot so elevated as is the gibbet on which Christ has subdued death and the devil. The gibbet is the gallows, the place of public execution. And there is Jesus hung on the cross. We had never seen such a magnificent court. We had never seen such a stately throne, such a distinguished triumph, such an elevated chariot as when Christ conquered his enemies on the cross, as our sin was paid for. So when you picture your king of power, do you picture him suffering in this way? Because the true king of power did. Here's a little aside as we get to the end of of Mark. We're going to encounter this Roman centurion who saw Jesus on the cross. On the Mount of Crucifixion. And there was a remarkable proclamation on that day. This Roman centurion, the one who executed Jesus or was part of it. Identifies Jesus saying, truly this man was the son of God. In our passage today, God himself speaks from heaven, identifying Jesus as the son of God on the mountain. On that day, on that mountain, this Roman centurion, the least likely of converts, is going to proclaim the identity of Jesus as the son of God. This centurion saw Jesus' suffering. He stood facing the suffering savior. He saw him clearly. He understood that he has witnessed true salvation worked by God himself before his very eyes. Because that's what the king of power does. He breaks into the heart of the executioner. The centurion's declaration on the mountain was a declaration from heaven because that centurion on his own could not have made that claim that Jesus is the son of God. You and I cannot make that claim that Jesus is the son of God unless it comes from heaven. Unless God works in us and speaks to us and shows us who Jesus is, and then we can look at him and see him. And that's what the King of Power does on the cross. He breaks into hearts, into hard hearts, and saves his people, and that's how he wins. We also know that there is no other way that salvation could be accomplished. We need a sacrifice, we need blood to be spilled. John 3:16 tells us this is evidence of God's love that he sent his son for us. And we try to find alternatives, but every other alternative is insufficient. There is no alternative to salvation because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ alone is sufficient. The king of victory. The king of suffering. The king of glory. The king of authority. So as we look at what this means for our lives, I actually want to walk our outline backward. We looked at his glory, his authority, his victory, and his suffering. What if we looked at it as his suffering and death? His resurrection and victory. His ascension to the throne and his reign and glory. In reverse order, we find here the story of Christ in Scripture, His suffering and His death. He he rose from the dead in victory. He ascended to the seat of judgment at the right hand of God. And in His final reign in glory, we see He will subdue His enemies under His feet. The Apostles' Creed says it. We sang it earlier. He suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. This is the story of the King of Power. And every step is necessary for our salvation. The King of Power suffered and died. So, what does that mean for us? That means we endure with him. The promise is that we too will suffer. Christ has called us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. He is our pattern. He is the one through whom or through with with whom we go through tribulations and trials and difficulties. And if we endure with him, we will also rise with him in new life. The king of power rose in victory in his resurrection. So you and I also live in new life by the spirit who dwells in us as we put to death the deeds of the flesh. We also get to live confidently. I think the best application here for the fact that Jesus is the King of Power who rose in victory is this take heart. Take heart because we too will rise. Death does not have the final say. If you're grieving, if you've lost someone dear, take heart. If you're afraid of death, take heart. If you have deep shame, From your sin, take heart because we have a king who is victorious over all of these and will bring us with him to his throne. And the king of power is seated with the authority of God at the right hand of the father. And so we trust him because on that last day, when Christ judges on that judgment day, either the glory of God is going to consume us and devour us. Or we will be transformed to be like him. Those are the two options when we encounter the glory of God. So we trust him and we become like him because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 with lots of themes of this transfiguration story, he says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So let's set our sights where he is, where our life is hidden with Christ in God. And that king of power is going to return and reign on this earth, the new heavens and the new earth one day as the radiant, majestic one, the ancient of days. And so what do we do? We wait. We anticipate. We live with hope. We set our sights on what is coming. We get a glimpse of the sweet Beulah land when we gather together and we look into God's word and we hear the hope that we have. We get a glimpse of what's coming every time we hear the gospel. Jesus very intentionally chose his disciples and brought them with him up the mountain so that they might see his glory and get a glimpse of this hope. God very specifically spoke to the disciples so that they might know and be drawn near. God draws his people near. God wants us to be with him and we will be with him to behold his glory, see him in all his glory and his with unveiled face. And yet somehow we will not be consumed because we will be found in Christ. We will be made new. If you have not yet put your faith in Christ, I don't want you to think that that day will be a good day for you. That is a day of great judgment. God is an all-devouring, all-consuming fire, and His holiness will burn up wickedness. But if you look to Christ and say, He is enough, this King of power, this King of glory, this King of authority, this King of victory, this King of suffering is my King. Then you will reign with Him for eternity. And so we say, come Lord Jesus.